It was a few years ago, I was walking home from work, um, and it was like a kind of gray day. It was pretty still and quiet. There was no one else on the street. And all of a sudden, I found myself caught in one of those classic Midwestern rainstorms. Have you ever been caught in a classic Midwestern rainstorm? It was like in a matter of seconds, I was totally drenched. There was this like huge rush of wind at my back that was trying to topple me over. Lightning was like crashing over top of my head and I was totally exposed. There was nowhere that I could run for cover. It was both an awesome and a terrifying experience at the same time, which if you've experienced it, you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And as I was thinking about it, in our modern world, we're really used to what one writer calls predictable forms of power. We're used to the kind of power that we can get our hands around, like electricity, gas, the internet, oil, plumbing, the kind of power that we have at our fingertips and that we can engage at a whim on a daily basis. And ultimately, it's the kind of power that we can predict, and in being able to predict it, we can put it to use to serve our own purposes, our own outcomes, and our own agendas, to really build our own little fortified kingdoms. But the power of God is not like that. The power of God is not that kind of power. It's a good and a gracious power. It's certainly that. But it's not a power that we can manipulate or that we can control. It's not like turning a faucet on and off. It's more like an uncontrollable Midwestern rainstorm. And the stunning thing that Christianity claims, when you observe the claims of Christianity, is that this kind of power was actually the kind of power our lives were created to run on. That God created you and me to receive his own life, his own power, as a free gift, as his creatures. And that without his presence and his power operating in our lives, in our world, even in the church, things just don't work very well. They don't run the way that they're supposed to. They stall and they break down. We've all experienced this. Maybe you're here this morning and you feel like your life is breaking down. Maybe that's even why you've, you've come in person or you've tuned in this morning. It's because your life is breaking down. Things aren't working in your relationships. Things aren't working in your job. Even in your own body and soul, things are not the way that they're supposed to be. You've tried everything else and nothing can help. Or maybe you're here this morning and you sense that the Lord has a call for you. You sense that God is sort of stirring a desire or a dream. There's some invitation for you that God is giving. And yet the task feels too big. The details just feel too uncertain and ambiguous, maybe even too anxiety-inducing. And you feel stalled, like you're having a hard time just taking that first step of obedience into whatever it is God wants to do in you or through you. We need the power of God to rain down on us like a Midwestern rainstorm, don't we? We need the power of God to blow through our lives, to blow through our world and our city and our church. And in our Bible reading today from the book of Acts, we see that the first apostles and disciples of Jesus actually find themselves in a very similar situation to us. 
They've just received this huge commission, this huge job from Jesus, one that they can't possibly fulfill apart from the power and presence of God blowing through their lives and through their ministry. They need a supernatural power from above that they can't control, that they also can't conjure up on their own. So if you open your Bibles with me to the book of Acts, chapter 1, we'll look together at how Jesus meets these first disciples and promises them power. How he continues to meet his disciples and promise them power all the way down to us today. We'll start in verse, verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all the things that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he'd given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he has chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So as we enter into this scene, Jesus has already been raised from the dead, like our gospel reading spoke about this morning. And for the past 40 days, he's really just been regathering and ministering to his disciples. He's been visiting them. He's been comforting them. He's been opening the scriptures to teach them and to open their minds, really, to show them how his death and resurrection was actually part and parcel of God's salvation plan all along. And I think that for most of us, we sort of collapse the narrative in our minds. So we think of it as, okay, Jesus was raised from the dead. Maybe for a few days, he visited his disciples. And then by the end of the week, he ascended into heaven. But Jesus actually stuck around for a long time. When you think about it, 40 days, that's over a month that Jesus had been raised from the dead and was just walking around, teaching people, having meals with people, praying for people. Luke counts us uh, 40 days here. So, you know, it's really no wonder that after a while, his disciples are kind of like, all right, Jesus, this is awesome, but like, what's the plan now? Like, you're raised from the dead. Okay, we get it. You've shown us it in the scriptures. This was all supposed to happen, but like, what's next? What's going to happen now? And we see this in the question that they put to Jesus in verse 6. So when they had all come together, they asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So we know historically Israel had been under Roman occupation for, for generations, without their own land, without their own kingdom. And Jesus had been talking a lot throughout his ministry, and we're told at the beginning of our chapter, especially after his resurrection, he's been talking a lot about the coming kingdom. And so it's actually kind of a natural question that the disciples ask. They're sort of putting two and two together in their minds, and they're assuming, oh, okay, so Jesus now is probably going to give us back our kingdom. He's going to give Israel back their kingdom and kick out the Romans. It's a logical conclusion, and it's really an incredibly fair question. But look at how Jesus responds to them in verse 7. It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. 
It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. So as humans, we so badly want to know the future, don't we? We so badly want to know what's the plan? What can I expect? What are the next steps or the guarantees? Or what can I at least fall back on if nothing else comes through? We've got stocks predict, stock predictions, we've got weather apps, we've got calendars. We've come up with all of these tools to just try and help us manage the chaos of life and bring some order out of it, to make it more predictable so that we can bring it under our control and ensure our own outcomes according to our own values and agendas and timetables, right? And so many of these tools, I mean, these are good and precious gifts from God that do help us provide order and structure to our lives. They help us flourish as humans. We should praise God for them. But Jesus confronts us here with the reality of human limits. He does something that, as as awesome as these gifts are, we don't really like to acknowledge, which is that they are limited. And that we as humans are limited. It's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Theology 101 is that God is God, and that as God, he is really smart. So that means that he knows things that we do not know. He has power and authority that we do not have. And so if Jesus is Lord, if Jesus really is, as he claimed, fully God and fully man, and if, as he said, all power and authority had been given to him by his Father, that means that Jesus sets the agenda, not us. That means that Jesus calls us to follow his timetable, not vice versa. And even when the apostles, I mean, his inner circle, these these men who he's about to entrust the ministry that he's been building to on earth, the men who are going to sacrifice their lives for his kingdom, even when they press him for more specific details, he confronts them with the truth. It is not for you to know. It's not for you to know. My brothers and sisters, if we're going to be serious about following Jesus, which I know you are, inevitably he's going to call us to something that feels uncertain and ambiguous. Eventually he might even call us into uncertainty and and, uh, ambiguity itself. He'll call us to do something, but he's not going to give us the specific details that we want. He's not going to give us the guarantees that we're asking for on the front end. He's simply going to call us to step out in faith and take that next step of obedience, even if it doesn't make sense. If we think about it, it really doesn't make sense because Jesus commissions these apostles. He commands them to go out into the world to make disciples, baptizing, teaching them everything that he commanded. So he says, go, and then here he says, wait. Go, and then his last words are, wait. Wait until the Holy Spirit comes. Seems kind of counterintuitive, right? Like he's slowing them down. He's given them this huge job. They're probably like, okay, Jesus, we're going to go to the whole world. We should probably get started. Can't the Holy Spirit just 
fall on the way? Jesus says first, wait. It's counterintuitive. It doesn't make sense. But I think most of us who follow Jesus long enough, we understand maybe just a little bit what he's doing here. I think that Jesus is actually giving an integrity test to these first disciples. He's giving them an integrity test. Without him there in person, in the flesh, leading them from town to town, calling the shots, are they going to wait on him? Are they going to wait for his word? Are they going to follow him even when he speaks to them through the Holy Spirit and it doesn't make sense? Or are they actually going to try and build his kingdom in their own strength, according to their own agendas, according to their own timetables? In fact, are they actually going to build their own little kingdoms but build it in Jesus' name? Then and now, we are just like these original disciples. We are so drawn towards predictable forms of power, aren't we? The kinds of power that we can control, that we can get our hands around. Charisma, platform, ambition, funds. Jesus knows something that we don't know or something that we so often forget. That predictable forms of power can't usher in the kingdom of God. They are gifts of God, but they cannot usher in the kingdom of God. And Jesus wants to teach these first disciples that if they're ever going to see the kingdom come, if they're ever going to fulfill the commission he's given them, they've got to learn to wait on his presence and his power. And friends, we are not any different. We're constantly tempted to place our faith for security and for flourishing in something or someone other than Jesus. Even as Christians, even as ministers and servants, we're so susceptible to believe the lie that God's kingdom can be furthered by our own ambitions and our own talents, our own wisdom, even our own good intentions. But the inverse is also equally true. The inverse of this pride is that for some of us, maybe you're here this morning and you're sensing that Jesus is calling you to something, to some next step of obedience, but you feel too weak. You feel too tired. You feel too doubtful or unworthy to do it. You feel too uncertain of your own abilities and strengths. And the burden and the weight of that calling just hangs heavy on your shoulders and is stalling you from taking that first step of obedience Jesus is asking. Jesus he doesn't confront us with our limits because he wants to shame us or because he wants to stall us, but he actually wants to set us free. Jesus confronts us with our limits counterintuitively because he wants to set us free. He wants to set us free for obedience. And look at how he does this with his first disciples. Look at how he liberates them by what he says in verse 8. This is incredible. He says, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and all Samaria and to the end of the earth. And then when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. So Jesus doesn't give them the kind of power that they want 
but he gives them the kind of power that they actually need to fulfill his call. Gives them the power that they actually need to follow him. He doesn't give them the insight into the big picture that they've been asking for, the what and the when and the where and the the why and how, but he does promise them his presence, his presence and power through the Holy Spirit, a person who is God. Think about that. Holy Spirit, a person who is God, living inside of them, taking up residence, speaking through them, working through them as they walk by faith and not by sight. The kingdom of God comes where our weakness meets God's empowering presence. The kingdom of God always comes where our own weakness meets the empowering presence of God. And it's so important for Jesus' first disciples to understand that before they go out. It's so important for us this morning to let that sink into the deep parts of our being and our heart as well. Because Jesus will never commission us into self-sufficiency. I don't know about you, I always think maybe I'm just on the verge of being commissioned into self-sufficiency, like Jesus, trust me enough now. But he never never commissions us into self-sufficiency. And friends, this is actually a good and a gracious thing that he doesn't. It is a good and a gracious thing that he doesn't. Because can you imagine the weight that Jesus would have been placing on these first disciples? We told them to go out into all the world to, to help build his kingdom without the empowering presence of God with them and in them actually doing the heavy lifting. Can you imagine? That would be so cruel to give them a task that they can't actually fulfill and find satisfaction in, that they can't actually see come among them without the Holy Spirit. It would be cruel for him to ask them to do that. And Jesus doesn't command them to draw on their own strength and resources, but he says, you will receive power. You will be my witnesses. This isn't a command, but this is a promise. It's not a go do, but it's a you will. If Jesus went all the way to the cross to crucify the power of sin over the life of his disciples and over the lives of his disciples today, if he really did conquer death, if he really was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven where he was enthroned in the control room of the universe, he really has promised to send the power of his Holy Spirit upon those who wait for him and have faith in him. Friends, I want to ask us this morning, what are you free to say yes to? With that promise from God, what are you free to say yes to? no matter how weak and imperfect that yes may be. You may not be able to see the big picture. You may not be able to see all the interconnected details or even the final outcome. But what next step of obedience can you take because Jesus has promised his presence and his power to you through the Holy Spirit to live in you and to work through you? So as Father Aaron mentioned, as many of you know, um, for the last six months, my wife Catherine and I have been um, in a season of discernment. We're really just trying to discern where God's leading our family as we're in this new season of life now that I'm done with seminary. And after months of prayer and 
fasting and input from mentors of different parts of our lives. I'll admit that we really wanted to have more clarity than we have now. We really were expecting and hoping for more clarity. But the sense that we just continued to receive from Jesus was to move out from Chicago and to wait on me for the next step after that. And it feels painful, and it feels sad, it feels scary, it feels ambiguous. But let me tell you that over the last few months, I have never felt so bonded to Jesus. We have seen and experienced in real time the Lord Jesus building our faith by the power of the Holy Spirit. We've received incredible peace from his presence as we follow him, as painful and as uncertain as that path is. So for most here, that next step of obedience probably isn't going to be leaving Chicago or leaving Emmanuel. But maybe it's having a first conversation with one of your friends about your faith. Or maybe it's building into relationships outside of your own ethnic or cultural community. Maybe it's volunteering for a ministry or even starting a new ministry where there's a need. If you're married, it might look like making the commitment to bring children into the world and to nurture them and raise them in the love of Christ and the love of his church, as vulnerable as that feels. Maybe you're here this morning and you, you doubt the claims of Christianity, but you're here because you're deeply fascinated with the person of Jesus. And the next step of obedience for you might be just as simple as continuing to join us on Sunday mornings and coming to the picnics and the parties that we throw this summer and committing to really wrestling through those questions and those doubts in the context of a spiritual community. The kingdom comes where our weakness meets God's empowering presence. Maybe you're thinking, okay, that sounds nice. I get why that sounds nice, but actually, what does that, what does that mean? What does that look like for me as I try and take this next step of obedience? How can I position myself to actually receive this Pentecost power that you're talking about? Look with me to see how the apostles do this in verses uh, 12 through 14. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So I think it's first worth noting that they position themselves to receive this Pentecost power by actually doing what Jesus told them to do. They position themselves to receive this Pentecost power by doing what Jesus said, which is to go to Jerusalem and to wait there. They go and they wait. And one commentator writes this. He says, the obedience of these first disciples in that hard matter of waiting was one of the main reasons 
for the spread of the early church. They were used because they obeyed. They were used because they obeyed. How do they obey? What posture does their obedience in waiting take? Luke describes it in verse 14, saying that all of these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer. And this word devoting, it doesn't just mean that they were particularly honest or earnest in their prayer, as important as that is, but it actually carries with it this idea of being busy, of being persistent. They were devoting themselves to persevering prayer, seeking the Lord together with one mind and persevering prayer. And to receive Pentecost power, we've actually got to be perseverant in our engagement with God and in our openness to the Holy Spirit. We've we've got to be open to whatever it is that God might do, however he might answer uh, our prayers, and also however and when he might send the power that he's promised us. And I think that the interesting thing is that the, the apostles really, they didn't have any idea what they were waiting for. Like they'd never experienced a Pentecost before. So they've read about it a little bit in the scriptures of times when the Holy Spirit fell, but they didn't know what it would look like. But they were open. They were open to the Holy Spirit. They were open and willing to just respond to whatever it was that God did in their midst. So we've got to be persistent in our engagement with God and our own openness to the Holy Spirit. They couldn't predict or control the coming of God's promise but they postured themselves through obedience and through persevering prayer, waiting on God for his Pentecost power. I just want to say, Emmanuel, you are an obedient people. You are a prayerful people. And over the last eight years of fellowship in this community, I personally have witnessed the kingdom come in our midst. I've seen God's presence and God's power meet your humble prayers and acts of obedience. And if I could offer one word of impartation to you as you follow Jesus in this new season as a church, it would be this. Do not underestimate what Christ can do through his unified bride. Do not underestimate what Christ can accomplish through his unified bride. Pray and obey with expectancy. I know for a lot of us, we arrived at Emmanuel burned out from other places and spaces where there was sort of an overemphasis on doing for Jesus over being with Jesus. And maybe that's been your experience where Emmanuel has just been this, this place in this community of rest and restoration for you, of healing. And I praise God for that. I pray that Emmanuel will continue to be a place of rest and restoration for so many more who enter through its doors. But what I want this morning is for us to catch a vision like the disciples did on that first ascension day. A vision of Jesus high and lifted up, the Son of Man high and lifted up, enthroned in the heavens, given all power and authority by his Father, I want to say, do not quench the power of the risen one in you. Do not quench the power of the risen one in you, Emmanuel. Embrace your limits. 
Live into your limits. They are a gift from God. But as you embrace them, let them lead you into prayer. And as you pray and obey, expect God's promise of Pentecost power. You are his evangelists. You are his agents of righteousness and resurrection in Chicago. Do not underestimate what Christ can do through his unified bride. Emmanuel, I love you with the very affection of Jesus Christ. And I'll continue to pray for you and to watch with you to see all that God will do in your midst. I am so hopeful for all of the good things to come. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to his power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.